We need a drum roll, man. Because we, we are starting this series in the book of the Revelation. By the way, there's no S on the end of that word. There are many revelations, but the book is called the Revelation. Actually, in Greek, it is the apocalypse. So it's an apocalypse that's happening. Uh, we're living in an apocalypse. This book is about the apocalypse. Now, here's something interesting as we get started. Have you heard of H.G. Wells? He was a historian. He did a thing called the War of the Worlds that got radio broadcast, and people heard it and thought we were really being invaded by aliens, and they all, all these people were terrified and whatnot. Uh, that same H.G. Wells wrote somewhere sometime that the only people who read the book of Revelation are, what did he call them, cranks and lunatics. How many of you are willing to be numbered among the cranks and the lunatics? Yeah, amen, because that verse we read, what's it say? You are blessed if you read that book. You are blessed if you hear that book. We're coming into a blessing time. I'll take my place among you all, bunch of lunatics for God's word. Now, what we're gonna do today, hope this doesn't drive you deeper in your lunacy the way I'm gonna approach this, but we're gonna spend our whole time today on what I'm calling preliminaries. In fact, I now know because we just did this in a previous hour. We won't quite get through all those, so I'll have a little bit more of that next next week as well, God willing. But preliminaries, what are preliminaries? They are things you do before you get to the things you really want to do. What we really want to do is munch down on the book of Revelation, God's word. But this book needs a little bit of explanation, all right? This book needs a little bit of setup. So here's, here's preliminary number one. You'll be comforted to know this. We are not going verse by verse. All right? Because there's 22 chapters and there's 404 verses. And at the speed I would tend to go verse by verse through a book, we would be two and a half, maybe three years going through the book of Revelation. And if we did that, I predict that by the end of that time, none of you would still be here except my wife, and I'm not even sure about her. So uh, we're not going verse by verse. That would just be too long. I'd love to go verse by verse for three years in the book of Revelation, but there are a lot of other topics we want to cover in the next three years too. We can't just hear about that one thing for three years, all right? So that's the first preliminary. Um, We're not going verse by verse. So what are you doing instead? Instead... um, What I did is I've been studying for a long time to get ready for this series. In fact, I'm 66 years old. I didn't dare try the book of Revelation until now, all right? But in recent months, I've been working and working and working, trying to figure out how could I preach the book of Revelation and not empty our church? How could I preach the book of Revelation and not make them all go away? And uh, here's the thing that I came up with. Rather than try to go verse by verse, I picked out those things that I think you really want to, you really need to understand in order to understand the book so that next time you read it, I bet some of you don't read it because you're like, I don't know what that is all about, so I don't go read it. I'm hoping I can explain it to you enough that you'll go read it. And next time you read it, you'll have some marker passages. Like now I understand that passage, I can apply the same principle to the next one and the next one. And I want to go to some of those key things that people want to understand from the book. Like, for example, in chapter 6, there's a scroll with seven seals. What is that? What's the scroll? We'll tell you what the scroll is. There's no one worthy to open the scroll, but then a lamb. I think you know who that is. Then a lamb opens the scroll. So what is all of that about? And what comes out of the scroll? Well, in chapter 9, there are four horsemen who fly out of the scroll. Like, what is that all about? Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? You want to know that one, right? Say amen. 
Amen. Okay, so you want to know that. In chapter 16, there's a dragon, a beast, and a false prophet. They appear in a number of places in this, a dragon and a beast and a false prophet. Looks like they're attacking our system even as we speak here. So this is part of what they do. You'll see it in the book of Revelation. Uh, so we're not going by verse, verse by verse. We're going to take some of the major heads. Here's the second thing that I want to tell you. And I'm sure you don't know this, so this is going to be a big surprise. There are different views. There are different ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. There are different views. Did, did any of you know that? There really are. So, so what I know that means is, I know that some of you believe there are basically four views. There's view one, view two, view three, view four. This is how you approach the book. No, that's how you approach the book. I know that if I land on any one view, I'm upsetting the other three-fourths of you on any given Sunday. So I'm doomed. So just want you to know, till this series is over, I'm going to preach the sermon, run out that door, put on a mask, run to my truck, and go home, all right? So not really, but uh, I know I'm in trouble. So when I'm on this view and I'm, I'm presenting that view, some of you are going to say, no, no, that's wrong, Pastor D. It's this view. Uh, there are different views, and I'm going to make some people unhappy, but I'll try not to. I'm reminded of a thing that supposedly appeared in a lot of saloons in the old Cowboy West, and I imagine it really did. It said, please don't shoot the piano player. He's doing the best he can. Sounds like saloons lost a piano player from, now, from time to time because somebody went pew. So we're going to apply that to the preacher, all right? Please don't shoot the preacher. He's doing the best that he can. So preliminary number one, we're not going verse by verse. Preliminary number two, there are different views. Preliminary number three, I'm happy to tell you this. Look, guys, we can differ on the book of Revelation. It'll be okay. We can hold different views and still be loving brothers and sisters in Christ because what do we do at Cornerstone? We unite around the core doctrines. Now, when you come to this topic of the future, this topic technically called eschatology, when you come to these different views and different ways of interpreting the book, we're talking about the details, not the core doctrines of eschatology because the core doctrines of end time studies, eschatology, the core doctrines are we believe Jesus is coming again. We believe there's a last day called the judgment day. We we believe there's an eternal heaven, there's an eternal hell. We believe that believers will spend eternity with Jesus Christ on a new heavens, in a new earth, on a new earth, in a new heavens. I'll get that right. We believe those things. Those are the core doctrines. We unite around those. We can disagree on the details. So you're welcome to disagree with the view I'm going to land on, which probably isn't the view most of you hold. I'm going to expose you to something different and say, look, just think about it. Um, but uh, we can have different views. We can debate. You can come up to me afterwards and say, you're all messed up in chapter nine. We can go at it for a while and then hug and go on home. So it'll be all right. We can have different views on this. All right, have I made that point? We can differ on the book of Revelation. Here's preliminary number four. Ah, the demon flew away and we got our system back working again. What are the major views? What are the major views? Pastor Steve, you said there are four of them. What are the major views? View number one is called preterist. It's just a word that means past, like it's in the past. In other words, a preterist reads the book of Revelation and all that crazy stuff that starts at chapter four and afterward, really five and afterward, they read that and they understand it to be, and there are some very good Bible-believing pastors and teachers that I know of, that I listen to. I admire them. I esteem them. This is their position. I think they're absolutely wrong, but they're good people. 
but they believe that everything you read in the apocalypse, in the book of Revelation, occurred in the first century in those churches, and that it referred to the persecution they were enduring, and the fall of Rome that they witnessed, and all kinds of other things like that. So that's one view. Probably most of you are not preterists. Maybe none of you are preterists. Uh, The preterist view doesn't leave much in the book of Revelation for the rest of church history, frankly, but that's one view. Here's the second view. This is probably the one you're all most exposed to. If I had to guess, most of you probably hold this view, and I did for a lot of my Christian life. It's called the futurist view. The futurist view says once you get out of Revelation 1, 2, and 3, which are about Jesus Christ and the seven churches of Asia Minor, and then once you get past Revelation 4, which I can't wait to get to. It is the most amazing, the most sublime, the most earth-shattering, soul-rocking chapter in the entire book of Revelation, one of the best in the whole Bible, because in it, you're in the throne room. The whole of Revelation 4 is, you're in the throne room. So you're learning to see everything happening down here from the vantage point of the throne room. That's such a wonderful chapter. But once you get past one through three, the seven churches, and the throne room, like an interlude before the action begins, then you hit chapter five, and and the futurists say, now, at that point, the book jumps over the entire church age and lands when Jesus comes back right before the seven-year great tribulation. They believe there's a seven-year literal tribulation coming. And, and the, so the book really has nothing to do with us in this age. It skips over this age, lands there, and explains that age. So for much of my Christian life, I was a futurist. That's, that's what I was born into when I was born again. This view, by the way, also tends to interpret all of those things in a very literal one-for-one um, what it says is what it'll be. Like if it says there are locusts flying out of the pit, there are going to be locusts flying out of the pit with faces like horses and tails like scorpions, and they sting and you die, and so on. So they say there's an exact correspondence between the words and the meaning. I'm just curious, how many of you would probably say, yeah, I'm, I'm a futurist. That's my position. That's where I've been. What? Okay, not one of you. Are you like afraid because you think I'm going to be bashing that view? I'm not going to bash any of you. I know really fine people that I admire and respect who are futurists, excellent world-class Bible teachers who are futurists, and uh, bless them, man. I'll go listen to them anytime, even on that subject. They're wrong, but they can be wrong if they want to because they're so good on so many things. So um, that's the second view. The third view is called historicist. I listened to a guy this week, not on that topic, but a guy I like. He's out in Moscow, Idaho. I listened to him talking about something else because he's really good on that topic. But he's a historicist. That is to say, uh, no, I'm sorry, he's a preterist. Anyway, a historicist says, um, the things in the book of Revelation, chapter 5 and on, are specific things that have happened down through church history. So they say, this thing over here in chapter five, I'm making that up, whatever chapter, this thing in chapter five, that's about the fall of Rome when the Goths invaded from the north, those Germanic people, and when the Muslims invaded from wherever they came from, east of there, I guess. And when when they fell, that's that thing in chapter five. And then the thing you have in chapter six, I'm making that up, uh, that was the, the corrupt 
papacy of the, uh, the medieval church. And then the thing in chapter seven, that's Martin Luther and the Reformation. And then you come down to uh, Napoleon. And then later there's Hitler. And they find things in human history and say, the book of Revelation is pointing to those specific things. That's the historicist view. Then there's, and I hate this title, but we're stuck with it because everybody uses it. I don't get it. It's the idealist view. That's where I am. And the idealist says, the things depicted in chapter 5 through 22 are the church age. And from the vantage point of chapter 4, from a throne room everlasting eternal vantage point, the rest of the book is showing us how to see what's going on on the planet. Now, you're welcome to disagree with this view, and we can be good friends and punch it out a little bit and still love each other. But that's the position I'm convinced of from my study in scripture. I could be wrong, but it's the one I've landed on and I think it's right. That is the um, idealist view. It's the whole church age. In fact, let me flesh it out a little more for you. In the idealist view, what you have in the book of Revelation is a series of seven sections, each one taking us from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So each one covers the whole inter-advent period. So Christ comes and there's his second coming, and then you have another section, and Christ comes, and there's a second coming, and then another section, and Christ comes, and a second coming. It's, it's kind of like if you remember, do any of you remember overhead projectors? Weren't they cool? Years ago, I used to preach with an overhead projector, put my outline up there, move the slides and stuff. That was like, that was tech, man. That was modern tech. We were on the cutting edge. But in an overhead projector, you make transparencies and you can overlay one atop the other and you get more on your picture and more on your picture. That's what the book of Revelation does in this view. You get one picture of church history and then you overlay that with another picture of church history, bringing out other facets and another and another and another. And that's the idealist view. By the way, also in that view, the first half of the book views what's going on from more of an earthly vantage point. What's it like down here? And the second half of the book views everything that's going on from more of a heavenly vantage point, from the chapter four throne room vantage point. So those are the four views. There are Bible teachers we should know and love and respect who land in all of those positions. And all of those are fine with me because we hold together, we, we gather ourselves around the core doctrines of the faith and of eschatology, okay? Y'all staying with me? You doing good in preliminaries? You okay? Need a little encouragement up here. You all looking like, okay? Just got to find out. Are you still with me or not? Okay. Next preliminary, number five. What's the main theme? Oh, I love this. What is the main theme of the book of Revelation? It is that God is sovereign and he wins. And by the way, and we win with him. A very good commentary, one I read through preparing for this by William Hendrickson is titled, Commentary on the Book of Revelation, it is titled, More Than Conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So God is sovereign, he wins, and we win with him. How do we see this in the book? We see it especially in two ways. In John's uses of the word throne, 34 times in the book of Revelation, 
He uses the word throne, throne, throne. What if I said that 34 times right now? Throne, 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 throne. If you read the book and you start noticing throne, 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 you're going to figure out this book is about the fact that God is seated on his throne. In other words, he is sovereign over all this mess that's happening in the book, out of all these terrible things, that, out of the persecution that Christians endure. He is sovereign over that. He is seated on his throne, and you're supposed to see everything that happens in all of human history from the vantage point of God is seated on his throne. What's going on in your life right now? God is seated on his throne. The word first appears in chapter four and verse two. I'll show it to you. And there... John writes, at once, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. That's the first one. And then another 33 times, he's going to be throne, 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 throne. So the book of Revelation is about what? God is on his throne. Even when a church is persecuted, even when they're killing believers, and you're like, what's going on? What is this fiery trial? God is on his throne. And you must see all of human history in terms of God being on his throne. All of your life in terms of God being on his throne. In chapter 4, the throne room chapter, 17 times the word throne is used in one chapter. What if I stood here and said throne 17 times? Throne, 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 throne. Over and over. That chapter is to give you a vantage point on all of church history as seen from the throne of God. Like we're only seeing the earthly scene. That's the real scene. That's the control room. That's the driver's seat, if you will. That's the one who's in charge and he is seated on his throne. This was to encourage the early believers who received this book because they were persecuted and it was fiery and they were suffering. And John wrote this book and God gave them this book to say, look, I see that, and I'm on my throne. And then a second phrase that goes with that that is repeated many times in the book, and it is, it is the phrase, it was given to them. It was given to them. 29 times that phrase is used. It was given to them. It was given to them. It was given to them. For example, in Revelation 13, there's a beast that has 10 horns and seven heads. That'll be interesting. You all want to know, what's that beast? come back. That one won't be next week yet though. But, but there it is. There's this beast. And notice what's said about this beast. Revelation 13, 7 reads, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. It was given, it was given throughout the book again and again. Throne, it was given. Throne, it was given. Throne, it was given. This is the message of the book. You can tell just by the the multiple times those words are used. You're supposed to go away from the book and if you get nothing else, you're supposed to go away with this. I know now, like I'd never known before, God is on the throne of this world and nothing happens down here. Nothing bad happens unless it was given to them to do that. No persecution occurs unless it was given. Yes, you may persecute Steve. It's like in the book of Job. The devil had to come and God said, where have you been? And I've been walking to and fro on the earth. And God says, have you considered my man Job? Now, yeah, he just worships you because you bless him so much. All right, I'll tell you what. 
and it was given to him. Those words aren't used, but he gave to the devil permission. You may go do this, but not only that far. Devil comes back. Have you seen my man Job? He still holds fast his integrity. Devil says, yeah, yeah, skin for skin. Let me touch him. We'll see what happens. God says, okay, you may go this far, but no far. It was given unto him. In the Gospels, Jesus uses the same term with Pontius Pilate, and it's in the Gospel of John that this is reported. Pilate's like, oh, in authority mode, and Jesus says, let me tell you something about yourself. You could have no authority over me whatsoever if it had not been given to you by God. So that phrase is a key phrase to the book of Revelation. You're not getting the book if you don't notice. Throne, throne, throne. It was given, it was given, it was given. What's the book about? You poor Christians, it's tough down there. You're persecuted and in every generation and right now on the earth, there's fierce persecution and they're to read the book of Revelation and say, ah, but here's what I know. God is seated on the throne. He's sovereign. And, and these things that are happening to me and my family and my people, they're only happening because it was given. It was given. It was given. All right? You get that? Okay. Um, it was given. So throne, 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 given, given, given. God is sovereign in your life. In everything that happens in your life. In every fiery trial, in every difficult circumstance, the book of Revelation is teaching you God is on a throne. That's only happening because it was given. It was given. All right, preliminary number six. Y'all hanging in there good. So then let's just ask this. What's the purpose of the book? Here's the purpose. This book is written to strengthen persecuted Christians, believers, Christ followers, so they'll stand or put it another way, to give them a heavenly vantage point for everything so they'll stand. There's an adversary in the book. He comes out of the pit. He wants to knock us down. He wants to take us down. He doesn't want us to stick with Christ. He doesn't want us to keep following Christ. He's trying to drag us away from the faith. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, 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 Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. What do you do when you sift? You separate one thing from another. He wants to separate you from faith. He wants to separate you from me. He wants to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. So in the book of Revelation, we're, we're, we're shown how Satan is trying to sift believers like wheat and separate them from Christ and separate them from their faith and get them to weaken and get them to deny Christ. And the book is written to strengthen them so that they will stand. Let me show you a few examples. Revelation 2.10, please. This is to the church in Smyrna. Were the church in Joppa, they were the church in Smyrna. And here's what Jesus says, do not fear. That's what the book's for. Do not fear, because it was fearful. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. It's coming on you guys, first century, fierce persecution. Diocletian, emperor, he was horrible. Um, launched a campaign to stamp out the faith. One of the ways persecution happened most then, well, there was, there were, they, they murdered people, they imprisoned people, but some of the ways it happened more commonly, and this was terrible, was um, t- 
to have a job in most places in that world, you had to be part of a trade guild. Now to be part of the trade guild, you had to participate in two things. One was emperor worship. You had to say the emperor is God. And the other is you had to worship all the gods and offer up sacrifices, at least some, some, uh, something that smelled good or whatever. So you had to participate in idolatrous worship to keep your job. And Christians were being persecuted in this way. Uh, you're fired. And nobody else is going to hire you because you won't worship the emperor and you won't worship the idols. Uh, you're discarded. And now you have nothing. And now you're in poverty. And now your career is gone. And now your family's hungry. And now what are you going to do? Well, maybe we got this Christian thing wrong. Maybe we could just you know, like say the words about Caesar but not really mean them. And the book is written to say, no, don't say the words. Stand strong. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Here's another message in the book of Revelation. Why are all these terrible things happening? Some of them to believers that you may be tested. Jesus is doing some sifting. Let's figure out who's real here. Let's figure out who really follows me. Let's strengthen the true and let's remove the dross. Let's remove the other ones. And so it's that you may be tested. It's for, the, it's for your good. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Here's the point of the book. Be faithful unto death. And I wonder how many of you would say with all your heart, I'd die for Jesus. Like if they put a Glock 19 to my head and say, deny Christ or we're pulling the trigger. I'd say, pull the trigger, brother. You're taking me into glory. Right? That's what the book says. Be faithful unto death, and here's the promise, I will give you the crown of life. So those people in Smyrna, man, they were suffering, and it was hot. And this is Jesus' word. This is the point of the book to them. We see it again in Revelation 2.13, the church in Pergamum. This is interesting. Jesus says to them, I know where you dwell. I know where you guys live. I know what's there, where Satan's throne is. Now, what does that mean? By the way, notice there's another throne. There's God's throne, 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 throne. And then I'm, I didn't look. I think it's only this once. There's a Satan. Satan has a throne too. It's a little beanie throne. And he only has it because it's given unto him. And it's only given to him for a little period of time. And then he's, I wanted to say toast. That doesn't sound right. In the hot place. So what's it mean where Satan's throne is? There was some particular manifestation in their city that was extra powerful of the presence of Satan, of his presence in maybe the trade guilds, of the level of persecution brought about by him against the faith and against believers. And so Jesus comforts them and says, I, I know where you are. I know you're living where the heat is on, but here's the message of the book. Yet... He's commanding them, you hold fast. That's what the book is about, that you'll do that. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. They killed a guy. Imagine, I'm looking at Rick. Rick, no, let's not imagine you are. You guys just had a baby. We don't want you killed. Who do we want killed in this church? <laughs> imagine one of you has just been killed. What kind of shock would be, they just killed one of our people. We're all like, who's next? Is it gonna be me? And Jesus speaks to them and says, I know what's going on there and here's my word for you. I commend you because you held fast and you didn't deny the faith. This is what the book is about. Hold fast, stand with Jesus Christ. 
Let me give you preliminary number seven. There are nine of them, by the way, and we're only just going to touch into number nine, all right? Preliminary number seven. So who are the recipients? Well, immediately it was the first century believers. And the book, 22 chapters, was given to them to enlighten them. Now, the futurist view says they got the book and the first three chapters are for them. And then the rest of it doesn't really apply to them, but it's going to be some future people after the entire church age. But the idealist view that I'd like to expose you to at least, and you can take your pick which view you want to land on, and that'll be fine. Um, But the futurist view says really most of the book was not for them. I think it's much better to understand the whole book is given to help them, and then the next them, and then the next them, all the way down through the church age so that we can understand what's going on with a chapter four cosmic viewpoint, trusting in God's sovereignty, he's on the throne, knowing none of this happens unless it was given. So the recipients are, in my view, every generation of believers. It was the first century, and it was every generation. Listen to the words of Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. I'm rereading it for you. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. He's telling the first century that all this stuff you're gonna read, the time is near. Now in the futurist view, the time is a long way off. And I know they'll say one day with the Lord is, you know, I understand that. But he's telling them, look, this stuff's about to happen to you. I'm writing to strengthen you because the time is near. Let's go on quickly to number eight preliminary. Are y'all hanging with me? You're like preliminaries. Just get into the book, would you? All right. Next week, Lord willing. Uh, Preliminary number eight. What's the structure of the book? How do you put it all together? There are endless ways that people structure it. But if you're the idealist camp that I'm in, uh, pretty much everybody agrees, though we differ on to exactly where to start and stop. Pretty much everybody agrees there are seven sections, like I mentioned earlier, Each one starts at the cross and ends at the second coming, and they're like overlays. You can put one over the top, and it reveals more and reveals more, and now we're into more of a heavenly vantage point of it all in the second half of the book. So that's the structure. That's the approach that I'm going to take. It's church history seven times round from the heavenly perspective and from the earthly perspective. Now, preliminary number nine, and this is the fun one. This is the... $86,000 question. Here it is. Is it symbolism or exact correspondence? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. We'll finish it up next week. The sermon was intentionally prepared. I had no idea how long what's going to go. So I made it in like sausage links. You ever seen a bunch of sausage links and they're in a long string together and you can cut it off after any link you want. So we've gotten to this sausage link. We're going to take a bite of it and then cut it off. And we'll come back next week. Okay, the sausage link sermon. Is it symbolism or is it exact correspondence? You know what I mean? Okay, so is it to be interpreted absolutely literally or is there something figurative about this? For example, in Revelation chapter six, there's a lamb. Is that like, we're to imagine there was, there's somewhere in the future, there's a, bah, a lamb. Now, what's the lamb speaking of? That's Jesus Christ. So the lamb is symbolic of something else, Jesus Christ. 
and the lamb's gonna open a scroll that's up. Is there really a big scroll up in heaven or what is the scroll? I'll give you a hint. It's the eternal plan and purpose and counsel of God. Here's what will happen all down through time. And they're gonna open the secret counsel of God and show us what God has planned. And there are seals and only the lamb can open them. And once they open the scroll, four horsemen come flying out of it. Is there a literal scroll somewhere up in heaven and when it's open, four horses are gonna come out? Or are those things symbolic of something else? Let me give you another example. Is it symbolism or exact correspondence? Look at Revelation chapter nine with me and it's those locusts. One of the things you wanna know is, all right, what's with the locusts? What's with the scary locusts? And here's what they're described as. In appearance, the locusts were like horses. By the way, notice the word like. The word like appears again and again and again and again and again and again and again. I don't have the number right now. All the way through the book of Revelation, it was like. When it says the horses, the locusts were like horses, what does that tell you? They are not horses, but they're like them. He's saying, I don't know how to describe this exactly. It's like when you're having a spooky dream and you see a locust, but at the same time, it looks like a horse. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. The locusts were like horses. Like, see the meaning of the word like? It's like, it's like if I said to you, um, it was a hamburger, but it, it was like a hamburger, then it wasn't what? A hamburger, Right, is like one. So that word like, 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 like is key. It's used again and again and again. So here we see, in appearance, the locusts were like horses, but they're not, prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, but they were not. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. Like, 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 like. Next verse, verse nine. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, but they're not. And the the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle, but it's not. It was only like that. And verse 10, they have tails and stings like scorpions, but they're not. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. That is, they serve the devil. So what do we have there? Is there exact correspondence? Or is there symbolism? I think the word like is a dead giveaway. Like, 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 like. These things are symbolic. They indicate something else and not the thing that's first named. Now, Here's one more thing we're going to do. Hang in there with me. Take a big, deep breath because this is our last little point here and then we're going to shut this one down, all right? So another way, another indicator that the book is to be understood as highly symbolic is seen in Revelation 1.1. So turn there in your Bible or look at it on the screen and I'm going to show you four phrases that are used in Daniel chapter 2 And they're also used in Revelation 1.1. Those are the only two places in God's word where all four of those phrases are used together. And that indicates to us that John is saying, what I'm telling you is like what was in Daniel. In fact, it's a continuation of it. So let me show you Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. There are four phrases used by John right there that are also used by Daniel in Daniel chapter two. 
Not only that, but there are specific meanings to some of the words used here that we'll look at next week, Lord willing, that indicate what's, what's coming is highly symbolic. But here's the, here's the parallel between Daniel chapter 2 and John. John is lifting these phrases from Daniel chapter 2. He is in essence saying, you know what that is? That's what this is. What was in Daniel chapter 2? King Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision. What was in the vision? There was this great statue this, of a man. Do you remember that? And, and it had a head like gold, and then next was a silver section, and then there was a bronze section, and then there was an iron section, and his feet were partly iron and partly clay. And, and the thing about it is Daniel chapter 2 tells us, here's the meaning of that. And it's not that there's going to come a day when there will be such a creature on the earth, such a statue somewhere in space. No, no, no. He says, here's what that means. The head of gold, that's this nation. The, the, the silver part, that's that nation. And so he's got the Greeks and the Medo-Persians and the Babylonians and finally the Romans in there. And he says, that's, these are four successive kingdoms and the fourth kingdom breaks up into certain things. John says, you know how he was doing that, teaching you by symbols? I'm doing the very same thing. I'm in Daniel chapter two, apocalyptic genre, explaining to you other things that will be on the planet. And there are words used by Daniel and John that indicate the symbolism symbolism more. We'll go to those next week, Lord willing. All right, chop off that link. Here's where I want to end. Because here's what you need to know. What's the book about? What's it about? Throne, 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 throne. It was given, it was given, it was given, it was given. Stand fast. That's the message of the book, and it's a message for you. It's for you. God wants you to read that book and be blessed. What will bless me when I read that book? If you understand God is on his throne, 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 nothing happens but it's given and I'm to stand fast and hang on to Christ even if it should be unto death. So my dear brothers and sisters, let's be those kinds, amen? Let's be the stand, stand fast kind. Let's be the trust in God's sovereignty, trust in him on his throne, trust him whatever he says yes to, trust him whatever he gives and it comes my way and it hurts. We trust him and we hold fast our profession of faith firm to the end because those who do have this promise, they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there's a start. So in a minute, I'm going to pray. And then while you're still having your eyes closed, I'm going to rush out that door. Head on home quick before the rotten tomatoes start to fly. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this book. Help us to understand it. Give us the Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding that we may know the things that you have freely, graciously given us in your word. Father, You know, we don't know, but there's a good chance there's people in this room, people hearing this message from elsewhere who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you would draw them to the Lamb. And if you're one of those, would you just pray with me now? If the Lord's putting this in your heart, Father in heaven, I'm a sinner. Just like that lady said earlier in the video, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. And I'm turning to you now. Lord Jesus Christ, would you be my Savior? 
Amen. And if you just prayed that with me, if you're in the room, there's a connect card in the chair in front of you. We'd love to help you. Would you fill it out? Turn it in at the desk out there so we can connect and help you know Christ and grow in Christ. If you're with us online, there's a connect card also right underneath the video there in the description. Reach out to us. We want to help you know Christ and grow in Christ. So please give us that opportunity. That is what we're here for.